Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by legendary artist Marina Abramovich. Marina is a pioneer in performance art, using her body as both the subject and the medium. She's been doing this work since the 1970s in what was then called body art, which saw performers pushing their own physical limits in ways we hadn't seen before. In that historic movement, she did everything from putting razor blades to her stomach in Lips of Thomas, to taking pills for schizophrenia in Rhythm 2, to laying down inside a blazing frame of a wooden star in Rhythm 5. Now, in these early years, many believed Marina was more fit to be in a mental hospital than an exhibition space. Skeptical critics, of which there were plenty, could not see the value in what she was doing. But what she was doing was a blend of epic struggle and self-inflicted violence. As Nancy Spector of the Guggenheim writes, though personal in origin, the explosive force of Abramovich's art spoke to a generation in Yugoslavia undergoing the tightening control of communist rule. That explosiveness, as Spector describes, has remained in Marina's work through the years, culminating in 2010 with her seminal piece, The Artist is Present. For this performance, Marina sat silently at a wooden table across from an empty chair inside the MoMA atrium in New York City. She waited as people took turns sitting in the chair and locking eyes with her. Over the course of nearly three months, for eight hours a day, she met the gaze of over a thousand strangers, many of whom were moved to tears. This piece would garner Marina international recognition, putting performance art into the mainstream conversation. Now, 12 years later, Marina is representing the artist as present at the Sean Kelly Gallery in New York. That's currently available to visit through April 16th. But for today, before we get going here, I want to urge you to visit talkeasypod.com. On the homepage of our site, you'll see a portrait of Marina and the button, Listen Here. If you click that button, what you'll find is a virtual exhibit which we've created for those of you who may want a visual reference for some of the pieces discussed in this episode. You can find that at talkeasypod.com. You can also pick up your phone right now and take a look at the description of this episode and click on the link we've provided. Once again, 
That's talkeasypod.com. The guided virtual exhibit, while not mandatory, will only enhance your experience of this episode, which, by the way, is one I'm really excited to share with you all. I sat with Marina a couple weeks ago now in her apartment in New York City. As we talk about at the top, I hadn't done one of these in someone's home since pre-pandemic, and I don't know why that makes such a difference. Maybe it was the cookies she was giving me, this unusual tea, whatever it may have been, I think you'll be able to hear it in this episode. So, without further ado, here is Marina Abramovich. You know why the people don't like to people get into their partners? Because they don't like to reveal anything about themselves. But I don't have secrets. <laughs> I, I have no secrets, which is so incredibly relaxing. You may be the first person to ever come on the show with no secrets. You know, when I do things, I am here with you. I'm not where else. That's how I do the show. Yeah. Marina, thank you, uh, for having me in your apartment. This is very unusual, especially in pandemic times. I think I totally ignore pandemic times. Looks to me, I don't know, I work more than ever. I travel more than ever. I'm really lucky I never got sick. I got all vaccinations, boosters, and like everybody else. But to me, the pandemic time, okay, sorry. What's that? It's a ring. Is it you? Yes. <laughs> The bell rang. Marina walked to the door. Now she returns. They're renovating there. They're kind of mixing the door. Okay. So my pandemic time was incredibly creative. For an artist, solitude is so important. In these two years, there was plenty of solitude. Also, for me, nature was very important. I developed this exercise that to go to nature and look the tree you really like and hug the tree and complain within minimum 15 minutes. And I done this in England and people really start complaining much longer than 15 minutes, so much to complain in England. They start crying, they start pouring their heart out and talk about their lives. I really understood how much nature can heal. Well, we're gonna do a whole show with very little complaints. <laughs> we're not gonna complain too much. I'm not complaining type. I actually am very positive. You know, to me, when I see something very tragic, something very difficult is happening, it's always reason behind to really understand why things are happening is not happening. I love the, this saying of Sufis. I think it's a Rumi. He say, the worst is the best. And why? Because then when it comes to the bottom of things, then somehow, the gravitation force pulls you up after every rainy days of the sun. How are you grappling with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine? I was just reflecting on this whole thing. You know, first of all, I've just been there. So my relation to this is really like something's happening to my family and it's devastating. And I've just been in a Kiev walking on the streets and seeing the buildings being demolished and the suffering and the people in the subways and no food and no electricity, no water. And feel almost guilty how lucky I am here. I'm here in America and I just, uh, you know, go to the bathroom and have a hot shower anytime I want. And then also the question, but what you can do in this situation, how you can help. I also have the same questions when it was war in my country, in ex-Yugoslavia. And then I realized the only thing I can do is do my work as best as I can and give the message through art. In that time in uh, Yugoslav war, I created this piece, Balkan Baroque, which I washed the bones repeatedly for five days in the 30 degrees Celsius when the warmth was coming out of the meat and blood was everywhere. And the message was that you never can wash the blood from your own hands. And that image is looking very apocalyptic, you know, me sitting on the pile of 2,500 bones and try to wash them without any result. That was in 1997? Uh, yeah, exactly. But the part of this more important was, it was for that moment from the, my country, but that image I also want to be transcendental. I want to be that image that we can use over and over again, wherever war is somewhere. So now is Ukraine. 
just before I, uh, this war started, the last, only a few months ago, I've been several times in Ukraine because I was invited to build monument for Babiar. Uh, Babiar, it's one of the very dark part of history of the Second World War. In 1943, uh, 130,000 Jewish people, gay people, and the gypsies been killed in three days, stripped naked and killed on the hill and thrown into the mass grave. And then after that, it was just put the concrete over this whole thing and became the park. And this park stays through the Nazi period, through Ukraine period, and Russian came and Ukraine came back into the independency. And never been any kind of memory about that event. And some Holocaust people who still survive, some people who remember this whole thing, and never had any point that they can actually mourn or they can, you know, sit in silence and reflect on this event till Zelensky, the president, came. And Zelensky is a Jewish, and he felt his duty as the first thing, actually, to create the park of the memory about Babiar. And he was some artist, and I made the proposal, and my proposal was accepted. That was very touched and really full responsibility what I'm going to do there. So I was thinking how I can conceptually prolong this wall of prayer in Jerusalem all the way to the Ukraine, into the wall of crying, healing, and forgiveness. And I came with this idea of 40 meter, very big wall, enormous, I don't know how many tons actually, to construct freestanding wall in this park. And the wall was made from the coal, black coal, who is actually came out of Ukraine. And then I ordered 250 pure crystals from the middle of the mines in Brazil. And I positioned them in uh, three places, in exactly position of the head, heart, and stomach, uh, with the different sizes of different size of people, including the children. And the instruction of that wall was that you're going there, face the wall, and press at three points of your body against the crystals, and close your eyes and just contemplate, remember, and also get healing from crystals that historically had been possible. And it was incredible to see 40 people standing against the wall. And when it was the opening of this old Babiar event, for the opening came Zelensky, came the president of Germany and the president of Israel. And these three presidents never face the wall in their life. They always face the audience. And I asked them actually to face the wall, and they did. And this was a very historical moment, you know. The idea of that monument is there for healing. And before the attack of Russia, there was always so many rumors in Ukraine, the war will start frequently to be used more and more and more. And I hope there will still, after this hell finish one day, I hope the wall will be still there. Something you said early on, you and I, sitting here in this beautiful apartment in New York, you feel some kind of guilt that you're here and your friends are in Ukraine. How much of your work do you think comes from a place of guilt? I don't think much, actually, if I think really seriously. Lots of work comes out of uh, missing love, out of uh, loneliness, broken heart, unhappiness. Uh, some kind of big drama. You know, I always think that generally, if you look history of art, it's not too many art come from happiness. You need some kind of push into something that is different than your tranquil life. And always my old theory that, you know, if your childhood, you have great childhood, it's difficult to become good artist because you have to have a difficult childhood because you have so much work to do, to, to work with. And I'm always, you know, I take my body as, as a center of the work, like, you know, pushing mental, physical limits, but also the body's universe. And Nobody knows even how our brain works. We think that we have 30% working, but actually scientists have just developed the theory that we only have 20% work. Some people seem to have less than 20%. Less than, I'm sure. But the, the thing is that, you know, if I take my body's universe, it's endless exploration, endless exploration. And to me, in, the, in the, my early period of work, I was really kind of pushing these physical limits. And now I'm so much more interested in the brain and, and mental limits, which is so much harder. But I think the work, if you come just uh, about guilt, I don't think that's interested. I think it's so much more important to kind of expand consciousness and see things in, in a kind of big view.
I always love this big view. I don't know. I have this story that everybody should go to the, the Museum of Natural Art History here in New York. And there is this uh, conservatory. And actually, this is for children mostly. And then you go there and you're lying on these very comfortable chairs. And then all swear open. And there is a universe. And then you see a Milky Way. And a tiny little a shiny dot, they point it with the laser and say, and this is Earth. And then comes this voice like uh, George Clooney or whatever, and say, this is a planet Earth. And we look this, this tiny little blue thing. And on this tiny little blue thing, how many shit is happening and how much we don't care about these little blurs. It's terrible. So I always try to have this view from the plane, you know, on the old thing, and to see this in the context of the planet, in the cost, you know, cosmic black holes universe. When I was a child, my big question was always, what is behind of the cosmos? Where are we now? There's a piece of poetry that you discover in your childhood that I think informs the artist as present. It comes from Rilke. It goes, Earth, isn't this what you want? To arise within us, invisible. Isn't it your dream to be wholly invisible someday. O oh, Earth, invisible. What if not transformation is your urgent command? This is so incredible. You see, Rika is my big, big love. And this was uh, related to the Great Wall that I walked together with Ulai, each of us two and a half thousand kilometers to come to the middle and say goodbye. One of the reasons we wanted to do this because NASA report was also that only visible construction human-made on our planet can be seen from the moon, from outer space, it's the pyramids and Great Wall of China. So before NASA, before satellites, before anything, the second century poet Chinese said, Earth is small and blue, and I'm just a little crack in it. Confession of the Great Wall of China. I mean, how he explained this complete astral vision of somebody looking from up into the Earth in the second century. This idea of transformation, this is recurring throughout your work. The artist is present as being represented by a video installation in this upcoming exhibition. For people who may remember this piece, or those who don't know about it, how do you think about this performance now? You see, this is 12 years later. And uh, one of the reasons why I want to show to actually this piece now in a gallery after 12 years is really that I have very large young audience. I, my generation is not kind of my audience. And so many of them never had the opportunity to see this work. It's a huge opportunity to actually reconstruct it. But also what is happening in this, in this piece, it's that I documented lifetime exactly, which is insane. We are talking 716 hours of the documentation. I was thinking how I can present this. I was very conscious about recording this historical event, even if you're never going to sit there and look 76 hours, but you, in your mind, you know that's real time, real labor, which I put in and it's no fake. I never stand up, I never drink the water, I never moved. So it's just to be there present for this period of time. So what we had there, we had one camera who filmed the whole situation, which is a two chairs and table, in two months and later on tables removed, it's just two chairs. And then we film, you know, on one side, me, first months in blue color, because dress was blue, second months in red, I need more energy, and the third months purification, white color. So that each of the square, which is actually film on my face, it's actually eight hours multiplied by three months. The only time that is 10 hours is every Tuesday when museum is open 10 hours. So it's really created as a diary. On another side, you have people. Every single square is amount of people who sit that day. Some of them sit five minutes, 20, 30. I have the guy who sit the entire seven hours. I have the same man sit 21 time in the different periods. I have people returning, coming back and so on. So the second screen on the opposite is like pulsating up and down, up and down, up and down. And in the middle, you have original two chairs and the table. So it's real time. You go into kind of time capsule to see this piece. And then it's very important, another 
thing about this installation, the photography. In the 70s, when you record performance art, the photographer never been told what to do because also performer sometimes is very impulsive or is very improvised, so you never know what's going to happen. And then sometimes it's 15 minutes, one hour, two hours. So the photographer will come, take some shots, go smoke a cigarette, come back, take another shot. So what you see, it's not really exact what happened there. And also it's influenced by the vision of photographer, what he see, and not what actually see the performer after seeing documentation. And here I have Marconelli, who I asked to photograph every single person, which means that he's the first photographer in history to be there exact amount of time like me with exact same conditions. He could go to the toilet, he could not go to eat, he had to be there to photograph every single person. And so most of the people sit there and cry. And the Marconelli told me that he will actually photograph different sequences, but we also will make the point of waiting that the tear reach the cheek and the light just kind of hit that point that is glowing. Wow, the photographer, we just actually published the, the book. It's, it's, it's just incredible. For 760 and a half hours, you're sitting motionless in the MoMA atrium. Again, this is eight hours a day, every day, 10 hours on Fridays for three months. I have a question. We'll come back to some of this later, but I have a question. You and I just sitting here now, you're an extremely excitable, animated person that wants to go from here to here in conversation and, and, and offering tea and you've given me cookies and- Japanese and, and, too. Japanese and, <laughs> and all these treats and- I sense a kind of restlessness, even in the pandemic, you are creating endlessly in the work when you're sitting there for three months. Did it calm you in some way? You know, I don't need to be calm. I am exciting. I love things. I love to explore. I'm curious. I love to see every moment the world like a child just you know, born. This is so important. This, I feel that life in every pore of my body. And the work in a performance work is something else. You enter to another type of yourself. You enter in your super self, how I can say. It's a transition, you know. You create the concept and then you execute this concept. And that's not the life, but is life also. Because three months doing this thing become life, become my life. Because it was nothing else. Because there's no division, no division. at that point between no, no. art and your life. And then when you when I came back out of the performance, I made a big party. I went to the countryside with the 12 friends and we had a blast. We had a love and we had a humor and we have ice cream and we have fun. You know, this is the thing, you know, it's it's not contradiction. I have so many different people in me, and all of them have a kind of um, equal presence, and each one come in to function what this, what the concept needs, you know. So I am doing nothing regularly, you know. Like uh, people say, "Oh my, you meditate every day." No, I'm not. But there is a time that I just wake up and I'm lazy, and laziness is fine too. And then I have uh, some ideas, and they're really shitty, so. I'm thinking and love about them and I'm not doing it. And then I have an idea, idea I'm so obsessed by it and I'm so afraid. It's like, hell, I have to do that. Like artist is present. That was a hell of an idea. But it was also opportunity to show the transformative power of performance art by doing absolutely nothing. That was incredible. But it was every day could be the last, how heavy and difficult it was. But that was my chance to do that in a setting of the MoMA Art Museum and, and put performance right from non-mainstream art into mainstream. And to me, I was 65 when I done MoMA. I could never do this when I was 25. For simple reason, I didn't have this willpower. I didn't have the wisdom. I could not concentration and any of this. 65 was the right time, and I do it. I mean, now I am next year 76, and I'm planning very big performance <laughs> in Royal <laughs> Academy. And I just done, you know, opera, which I'm directing and playing myself, but not so difficult. You know, but I want to say it's so interesting to explore new territories, to see what's happening. This is not restlessness. This is curiosity. And I love your curiosity. In 1976, you spoke on the role of the artist, you said, you have to realize that it is the decision of the artist to use their body through which it becomes an instrument. Then you only have to look at the message 
it carries. You have qualms just like most other people. That is an ethical matter. But the artist has nothing to do with the morality. Once you go over that limit, the matter is about other things. Do you still believe that in 2022, that the artist has nothing to do with morality? But, you know, I just want to also say that taking back all the artist work, we are talking about performances, we are talking about fluxes and happening, we are talking about futurists, we are talking about Dadaists, I mean, just name it, all historical things. It would never happen now because of this uh, the situation, how everything's judged. What does that mean? Look now, political correctness today. Like, you are accused to everything you say, every comment. You can't tell the jokes. You can't say nothing. It's so difficult. And the freedom of artists to be free and say whatever he wants is taken away. So the work that I've been doing in that period will never be possible now. Absolutely not. They will be judged in a totally different way. That And it's nothing to do with art at all. So this is what I'm really fed up with, the political correctness. I love telling jokes. I can't tell any joke anymore because I can't tell jokes about Mexicans. I can't tell about Jewish. I can't tell joke. The only thing I can tell about Montenegro people are my own. But everything else, I have a great Jewish joke, actually, that I can tell. So the two Jewish guys met on the street, and one Jewish guy said, okay, tell, you, tell me just in one word how you feel. And the guy said, good. Okay, if you need two words to tell me how you feel. He said, not good. <laughs> it's so stupid. I love it. It's just simple. And nobody got hurt. <laughs> okay. Well, but hold on. Let, let's stick on this for one moment before we go back. This is something I hear about often, that political correctness, cancel culture, is getting in the way of true artistic expression. But what has it done to your work? Has it in any way prohibited you from making something you wanted to make? No. Haven't you made everything you've wanted? It's true, I, because I, I don't give a shit about it. <laughs> this is why <laughs> I don't, I really don't, and I take my freedom. You know, I've been criticized so much constantly. When I was in ex-Yugoslavia doing my early performances, who are now in every art history book, it was terrible things about them that I should be put in mental hospital and that is not art, that this is a, this is shame and so on. And this go on forever. And then I was this poor artist who everybody liked to be discovered. Then I was discovered. Then in MoMA, I was celebrated. Then they start, you know, telling me how I'm celebrity now and this is not art. Then they're using the fashion clothes because I get fashion clothes <laughs> from the friends. Then I am become this conspiracy theory, which is another shit, you know, that I'm, at least they, before they told me I am satanic priest, now they actually, they upgrade me into the high priestess. So, I mean, this go on and on and on. And by the way, I'm really looking forward to the satanic parties you invited me to. <laughs> you know, I am, whatever you do, you know, but, and I'm target and I can't change that. All what I can do is do my work the best as I can, as I've always been doing, regardless of the opinions. And opinions are constantly up and down, up and down. You know, the more you're exposed and the more you're into the world, the more you have hate and love. Nobody's ever indifferent about my work. Or they hate me or they love me. Isn't that a good thing? It's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm not comp not complaining, just, just noticing. But sometimes the criticisms bother you. I hate lies. If I do my work and I give 150% what I'm doing and I give every atom of my energy to the work, I'm okay with this because I can't do more. And whatever you tell me is good or not, I, I can't change it. But if I don't do this 150%, I'm the worst judge to myself. I get sick. I don't go out to the street. I really know I didn't do my best. But when they're telling me that I am trafficking children and I am satanist, this is incredibly hurtful because it's total lie and absolutely diminished my function of an artist and my message. That is something that I can't take. Oh, wait, can I tell something more about, I need to get you something. You're gonna give me something? No, 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 I have to bring something. No, I want to talk about this Okay. Marina is in the kitchen grabbing what looks to be a newspaper. Artists are perceived differently than the male artists. It's kind of interesting. I just want this. This is a, the, the, the Guardian. 
last week. It's a very big article regarding. Okay. That, you know, to me, I also like to talk about how uh, somebody made an interview with me recently and they told me, you are the only female artist who have that kind of public image, like Iveve, like uh, Jeff Koontz, like Damien Hurst. Not that the other female artists have. I didn't think that way. But then I'm thinking, yes, if I have that kind of, what kind of image I have? I'm talking just especially about the two Guardians articles recently. One was about my show in October last year in uh, Listen Gallery. And then other one, you know, last week about publishing on my cards, Abramovich Method. You know, I didn't know that when you write the article, the titles for the articles are made from the different organization. The, so I had the both articles very well written by the people who are the art historian and they're good, but the titles are incredibly discouraging, diminishing, and vulgar. They're designed for people to click on it. It's, and that something bothers me. And this you don't have with the male artist. You have just with me, who is the only public one here. I mean, okay, this is one just now. No, the one in October was Marina Bramovic have a young lover, dirty jokes, and mystical crystals. That was the worst kind of summary what my 50 years of my career is. So now I'm publishing this. Uh, the cards will be really well reviews everywhere. And now the cover of the issue in uh, in Guardian is culture for her next tricks. Marina Bramovic, artist, provocateur, self-help guru. It's the most ugly titles I can possibly imagine. And I have to live with that. And when you read the article, this doesn't actually reflect the title at all. And why you think, my question to you, is this happening? I think there's two reasons why. One, people are reading less and less and publications across the globe have to continue to write headlines that are intentionally provocative to get eyeballs, to get people to click so that advertisers keep coming back. That's the financial part of it. And that's true. The second part is probably what you're saying, which is you're a woman in the public eye. And most of these articles, even when the articles are written by women, the headlines are written by men. So there's clear sexism too. But you know, it's one thing to take this when you're in the beginning of your career or the mid your career, but when you're really 75, it's the last act of your life. You know, how long I'm going to live till 80, 90, whatever. I hope 103 as my grandmother. But I just kind of have enough that my work finally should have the kind of weight and understanding which is more profound than these titles. Well, I agree with you. So why don't we take a break? And when we come back, We'll dive into the work. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized 
for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders, and an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming back, you talk about at this point in your life, wanting people to understand the work that you've made. Why don't we try to do that? Let's start with Rhythm Zero, which you performed in 1974 in Naples. Explain to people what exactly you did here. You know, by that time, I was already doing my performance work. Performance artists in those days was heavily criticized as masochist, as sadist, this is exhibitionism, that's not art at all, and so on and so on. And I come very angry and very fatal in that time when you're young. And they say, okay, let me see if I do something and see what will happen. If I put 72 objects on the table, which have the objects for pleasure and objects for pain and torture, including pistol with one bullet, and also the simple instruction that you can use everything on the table as you want, pleasure, pain, including killing me, in six hours. And I take all responsibility. And I'm standing dressed in black shirt and black jeans in the front of this table. Wow, that was kind of pretty bold <laughs> to do that. But I was ready to die. There was no question about it. You were ready to die. I was ready to die for art. You know, there is a wonderful set, the quotation of um, Bruce Nauman. He said, you know, the art is matter of life and death. Maybe sounds melodramatic, but it's also very true. This is how I took everything in my life as matter of life and death. This is why my work is so important to me. My work is everything I have. I pour my heart into it and every single work. And it's true and is vulnerable. And this is why young generation can react on me that way, because they understand it's not bullshit. Is understand that they have intuition, they have sense that I'm not playing anything. What I'm doing and what they see is what it is. This is a matter of life and death. It's my understanding that a man placed a bullet in the pistol of one of your performances. In that performance particularly. So for this performance, it was normal gallery. People came from normal opening, not expecting anything. They came with their wives, they came and so. And these six hours, we are talking, you know, from the evening till two in the morning. And they were not expecting anything like that. Me standing there in the front of them, completely looking one point fixed, and all this possibility. So the first three hours they've been playing, they will give me the flowers, they will uh, feed me with a piece of cake, you know, all kinds of things that was available on the table for pleasure and, and playing. But I took six hours. I gave them time to actually develop dark side of themselves. And then they start playing. 
They cut me on my neck, drink my blood. They put the cotton around my shoulders and try to burn. They put the water over me. They carry me around, spread the legs, put the knife on the table between my legs. They done all of these things. Still, the one came with the pistol, put the bullet, put on my forehead. Somebody start fighting. They throw the pistol away. There was all this incredible tension. Everything with Italians done to me, if you see the photographs, is reflection of three things. Poor Madonna mother, three possibilities. The women would tell men what to do and they would take my tears from my eyes. They would not do anything. And they cut my clothes, they exposed my breasts. When they, one gave me the rose, other one take the needles of the rose and stab in, into my breasts. I was standing there and I absolutely didn't react. If they put my hand up, I leave that way. If they move me, I had no reaction at all, like a puppet. And this went on and on and on. The only they didn't rape me because they was there with the wives, but it could go in any direction. And after six hours, I was really naked, full of blood, uh, wet, hair falling apart. It was horrible. The galleries came to me and whispered in my ear, six hours is finished. And I started moving towards them, to the public. They all ran away, literally. They ran away. They could not face me as me. And then I came to the hotel, I look myself in the mirror and a piece of gray hair in my hair. After that performance you just described. Gray hair. <laughs> with the gray hair, what did it tell you about people? It was very important because actually two performances, it was very important to me. The Rhythm Zero and many, many years later, artists is present because of the same reason relation to public. Because in the first one, I really push the dark side. And I understand in that process that public can kill you. When I understood that, I didn't want to deal with that part anymore. Then artist is present, I restrict everything except eye gaze. No touching and no talking, just condition is sitting and eye gaze. There I lift human spirit because I knew the key how to do that. That was the moment that actually the only they can do is to go into themselves. But I need all these years in between to get that twice. 36 years <laughs> in between. between the two. Yeah. Throughout your career, you've created performances around self-infliction. You have razor blades to the stomachs and lips of Thomas, a bed of fire and rhythm five, taking pills for schizophrenia and rhythm two. <laughs> oh my God, sounds so terrible. <laughs> but this performance... In Rhythm Zero is different, like you said, because others are causing the pain. And I wonder how much you're drawing from your experiences growing up in post-war Yugoslavia. Here's a passage from your memoir. When I was small, when my mother and sister would slap me, I got blue bruises all over. My nose would bleed constantly. Then, when I lost my first baby tooth, the bleeding didn't stop for three months. I had to sleep sitting up in bed so I wouldn't choke. Finally, my parents took me to doctors to see what was wrong with me. At first, they thought it was leukemia. My mother and father put me in the hospital. I was there for almost a year. I was six. This was the happiest time of my childhood. It's true. <laughs> I sound so dramatic now. <laughs> I look with total optimism and enthusiasm about this all hell I went through because I make me stronger. And uh, I also understood this intention of my mother because, you know, in these diaries I'm talking about her not ever kiss me or tell me I love you or something like that. And I never understood that coldness and the really suffering as a child who so much for that. But then when she died, I find her diaries and I read these diaries. And if I read one page of this diary during her lifetime, my relation to my mother would be very different. Why is that? Because she was emotional, suffering, father being totally unfaithful all the time. You know, have to have her career, two children to take care. And it was so hard. And I understand in her mind, the only way to make me strong is to make me warrior and cut me from all the emotional bullshit. That's how she saw it. But I didn't know that. I only knew this was that die. 
And then I really forgive this whole thing. So I'm looking this like just experience, but also the later on, the things that I done to my body, it's not reason because I wanted to suffer or I want to I'm interested in pain. It was much more related to the shamanism, to the rituals of different cultures. All of them deal with the facing the pain of the body and understanding the pain of the body and actually liberate themselves from the fear of the pain. And I just stage these things in the front of the public, go through this. And if I can do it to myself and do this, the public can also get rid of their fear of the pain. Because pain is something that you can open the door. Pain keeps the secrets. It's kind of complicated to explain all that. But in a way, you know, right now, I mean, do I look too sick? Do I look, you, you know, unhealthy or I'm something disturbed? No, I actually pretty free because I understood the structure. And this was, you know, one of the reasons how to enlarge your consciousness by getting rid of fears that you have. Basic fear of pain, of dying, of suffering. And I had plenty in my life and it took me 50 years to work this out. Do you wish you could have forgave your mother or mended your relationship before she passed away? Yeah, very much so. As I said, if I just read one page's diary, it would be different. And I'm so sorry, I never did. My mother was national hero that I didn't know either till I found the, actually the article and the medals in the little box under her bed because she never talked about the war. And my father always talked about the war. He was also here, but a different story. And she never talked. And she always had the light in her bedroom on. And I was always thinking because she's afraid of dark. And I don't think she was afraid of dark. She was pretty much have the guts and that was amazing story. Do you want to know the story how she got the hero? I know the story, but I would love for you to tell it. So she she um, was the commander of the Red Cross. She was like I don't know, twenty seven to like your age, on the front lines, picking up wounded soldiers to bring them in safety to the hospital. And there was occupation of Belgrade, and she had a truck with the six nurses driver, and she pick up on the streets of Belgrade soldiers, forty six of them put inside the car and was driving to get out of Belgrade to the hospital, which was not occupied. And in the process, the driver got killed and uh, she had to remove all the soldiers with the six nurses to the sidewalk and the truck started getting fire and she ran into the fire truck and take this um, the land phone that she can phone the hospital to send another truck. In meantime, four nurses got killed. So she's now with one, two nurses and her new truck came, got all the soldiers back to the, tr the new truck. 46 of them saved their life. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> Not bad at all. I keep thinking about her because throughout your memoir, you reference your relationship with her, especially in relation to how you loved. You write, when I think back on all that happened between Ule and me and Paolo and me, I often wonder what I contributed to each split. And I can't help believing that the need to be loved and taken care of, that my mother never satisfied, was a hurt I brought to every man I was ever with and something that they couldn't fix. You're 75 now. How do you think about those loves today? Oh, God. You know, I don't take it more because in the past, and oh, each of them I suffer, and, and uh, love with Paolo really broke my heart. And this is the reason why i done all this, uh, you know, the seven deaths of Maria Callas, because in her life, you know, Onazis broke her heart and she died. And for me, my work saved me from that dying, but I wanted to do something in, in memory of her. But finally... And right now, since five years, I'm in a relationship who is like, wow, I can't believe this is really happening. I've always believed the second shoes fall down and something terrible happen because it's based on trust and love and happiness and incredibly peacefulness and this so unknown territory for me. <laughs> and, and it's working. So I think all the understanding and all mistakes and the kind of knowledge I get from the old failed relationships kind of pour into this one that actually I think I'm more happy in my life than ever been. And it's like very unknown territory to work in. In fact, it's the exact opposite of territory we started with. Absolutely. It takes a long time. But also age is not bad at all because, you know, if you're old and sick, that really sucks. But when you're old and happy, and wise, 
I never want to go back when I was 20, 30, 40. It was too hard work. So it's okay. So basically, I want to get this right. You said in the beginning of this conversation, if you had a happy childhood, it's going to be pretty hard for you as an artist. Yeah. But if you're a happy adult at 75, does that work? Oh, yes, works because you have all this knowledge that you didn't have when you're 25. And that knowledge counts a lot. Honestly, this is like for me, the last part of my life and is so full of optimism and hope and happiness. And always I say the same thing, always about dying. All what I'm worrying about is to die without fear, consciously, and without anger. And if I succeed this, I done well in this life. Because, you know, as again Sufi said, life is a dream and that is waking up. You said your last performance piece will be your death. Not really that funeral, because that, you know, we don't know, but funeral, yes, <laughs> organized funeral. What is this project? <laughs> I just wanted to have happy ending. It's so important to have happy ending, you know, of one fulfilled life. And I really feel that I'm very lucky that my life is very fulfilled with so much events, good, bad, difficult together, all of them, just is kind of wonderful. That act of dying, you can't predict when, but the funeral, I don't want anybody organized for me. I like to be organized myself to be celebration, dirty jokes, <laughs> lots of music, nobody wear black, lots of food, and really remembering all of these happy moments, good music. You see, it looks like dad is knocking on our door or something. <laughs> It does, no. it does sound like death is knocking on the door. <laughs> it, means, it means we have to wrap up. It looks like. I was, this was such a wonderful conversation. And you hardly eat any cookie. I'm going to eat some cookies. I have two things for you. We started with the artist is present. I want to go to one day after two months of performing when a man in a wheelchair arrives at the front of the line. The guards remove the other chair, and put him in his wheelchair across the table from you. And you said, I looked at this man, and I realized that I didn't even know if he had legs. The table was in the way. What happened that night when you went home? Then I realized that I actually don't need a table. That is some kind of social structure that I constructed from the beginning. But I could not know there before because this atrium is such a huge space. And if I just had the two chairs, I felt it was very little because it's already so minimal. You know, I put a table there. And this is the fear generally of very young artists when they think they need to put lots of stuff. And I literally all my career remove, remove, remove. But now I was only two chairs and table. I think, okay, this is pretty minimal. But then when this man came and I realized, I don't know if he have legs or not, I understood I don't need this table either. And this was incredibly important realization. Then when I came to MoMA next day, the security manager told me that it's not possible, that it's buffer before me and audience, that you have to have it. I said, yes, but this is my decision. And I removed the table. At that, everything changed. I was dressed in white and all energy was like so dense. And relation was so intense, but I was ready for that intense relation because I already sit there two months before. So this is the process that you can't actually speed it up. You have to go slowly till you realize that you don't need anything. This is the only time that you've made a major change in the middle of a piece, right? Yes, only time. But it was totally necessary. And minimality of this piece, you know, because it's minimal, is so immaterial already. And that was the piece who changed my life. Why did it change your life? Yeah, because I realized that actually I have to work with audience. The my work is people. That's my work. And the people have to also do the work themselves. This is why I create Abramovich Method. This is why I create Institute. It's all new function. Removing the table from that performance, it reminded you of an Indian folk tale. With a coffin. Can you share that with people? This king who buried a very beautiful princess in the world and fall in love. And there was the most happy kingdom in the world. And she could become pregnant. And delivery of the child, she died. Or she became sick and she died. One of one other story, I don't remember exactly. 
And he was so devastated about his death that she, he put her in the simple wooden coffin and looked this coffin. And then he covered the coffin with emeralds and sapphires and gold and it was not enough. And around this coffin, he created another one and then little temple. And the temple was not enough and he make a bigger temple. And then he started growing, growing this huge kind of memorial about this beloved princess that actually the entire kingdom become the temple of her. And then he was looking there and there's nothing else to do. And he look and look and look and start saying to the builders, destroy the big temple, destroy the small temple, destroy this, destroy this. And everything was left. It was just this coffin with the emeralds and jewels. And then he say, okay, now we remove all the jewels. And there was only this simple wooden coffin there again. And then he looked the coffin and he say, remove the coffin. That's the story I teach you a lot. The story is our lives. We do all we can to fill it with people and places and things and performances and books we love. I'm looking around at your apartment, all these things. But when you die, you can't take any of this. <laughs> That's nothing. And this is why performance art is an incredible power of realization of so many things and kind of energy that other type of art doesn't have. And it's so difficult to maintain because it's immaterial, it's time-based. It takes everything from you. And yet, it seems you still have more to give. Till I die. <laughs> Is that a promise? Yes, I don't stop. Before we go, since I never had a chance to sit across from you during The Artist Is Present, yeah. would you mind if we just sat here for a moment? Close your eyes. I just want to say something when you sit still and quiet. It's never stillness and quiet because there's so much space inside your body, in your organs, between liver and kidneys, between your heart and ribs and so on. There is a movement everywhere. Then all the planet is moving around the ox and then the planet is moving around the sun and the sun and planets are moving around Milky Way, and everything is moving to another, who knows where, galaxies. And to understand all this is really to be still, and to understand actually stillness is being in the moment. Well, Marina Abramovich, I thank you very much for sitting in this moment with me, for all that you have done and will continue to do, and for inviting me into your home. No secrets at all. No secrets, but please promise and come to the workshop next time to do the cleaning the house, your own body house. Seems I have some work to do. Okay, done. Thank you for sitting with me. Thank you. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Adair Lentini, Billy Zhao, and of course, the inimitable Marina Abramovich. To learn more about the works referenced in today's talk, or to visit her new exhibition at the Sean Kelly Gallery in New York City, we've included links in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once there, you'll find a back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's talk, 
I'd recommend our conversations with Joel Meyerowitz, Gloria Steinem, Ocean Vuong, Hank Willis-Thomas, Kate Blanchett, Toyin Oji Odatola, Questlove, Stacey Abrams, and Margaret Atwood. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can do so at mail at TalkEasyPod.com. That's mail at TalkEasyPod.com. If you can, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Even just clicking those five stars on either platform really does help new listeners find the show. As always, our program would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.